connect with to see if they would like to come and join us, feel free to do that. And we'll keep you posted online with more information. Thanks, Steph. Good morning. Welcome. Hope everybody's doing well. I feel like uh, I feel like uh, I'm a little bit um, scatterbrained this morning. I've heard some people are sick and out, and you know, we had some people call out with the flu. So be praying for people as they kind of recover from that stuff. Um, if you weren't here last week, we had these bracelets that we gave out to remind us. Uh, to be fishers of men, so we, uh, if you want a bracelet, you can have that. Um, those stacks of uh, binders and the journals over there are free for the taking if you want to take one of those as well. Rob, you're laughing at me. I don't know why you're laughing at me. Look <laughs> at you standing right there laughing at me. Um, but good morning. I am uh, glad you're all, you guys are all here. I, I need to get my mind around what we're doing. Let me, let me pray so that my mind is kind of coming together. It's not feeling... Uh, spot on right now. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your presence is here. We thank you that you are uh, truly and really here with us, residing in this room and in our hearts, that as we gather together, you are present, and you are present in a new and powerful way as we gather together. And we're talking about very deep issues in this series, and those things can churn up things in us. And we ask that we would remember that you are faithful to walk through this stuff with us, that you care for us, that you know our hearts better than we know our hearts, and that you walk through these things uh, ahead of us, clearing the path so that we can find uh, renewal and healing, and that you are forming our character step-by-step uh, step along the way. And we just thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've been, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series called uh, Ruined a Renovation. I'm going to turn off the ringer on my phone because, believe it or not, people do call me during this time at our church. Um, and we have, we have been through, I think, three sermons in it, and today is the fourth, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I am very excited about what we're talking about, and uh, I am sharing this stuff with some people along the way as we, as we go about um, our life together during the week and community group or just meeting with some guys in church and things like that. So it's exciting, and many of you have gotten the book uh, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard, and you're reading along with us through this whole series, which this series is sort of based on those principles, and a lot of his words come out in this. So I've got to be honest, you know, I don't want to be uh, blamed for plagiarism. It's just too much to quote. The, Dallas Willard has such richness to him. I said this to uh, somebody the other day, I said, imagine the life you have to live to be able to write this book. You know, it's just such a good book. Uh, somebody else bought the book and said, man, this is deep stuff. I've got to read every paragraph like two or three times. And I, I feel the same way. It is. I've, I'm reading the book twice. I've, you know, I've read it once and I'm reading through it again uh, as I go through this sermon, um, this sermon series. But uh, we talked last week uh, about the need for us to focus on that bullseye, if you remember. Um, the heart of a person, if you, if you remember this, this is the person's worldview, um, looking at, at, at like the heart of the person that Jesus changes, right? 
uh, and we, we, we talked about focusing on that bullseye um, in our, our call to evangelize the world in obedience to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which is, if you've been around church, it's called the Great Commission, right? Uh, the, his last command, our great concern, our first concern, right? And um, we said last week that we shouldn't get caught up in dancing around the outer circles of behavior and artifact, that we get tripped up in that thicket of junk out there, that we, don't, we get derailed from going to the heart of people and the heart of ourselves in this whole discussion. Rather, we need to be concerned about that heart, our heart and the heart of others as, as they relate to Jesus, how Jesus changes us. Which isn't to say that behavior and artifacts out there, what we, what we make or what we buy or what we do with our time, are unimportant. They are very important. Our behavior as Christian is, Christians are, is very important. And it should change. It should change. Right? How we live is very important, but it should truly change. Truly, truly change. It should be resu- that change should be resultant of a divine work in our hearts, not just a behavioral restraint. Because that is simply moralism, that is simply legalism, and we've seen the church do that in the past, and it's not at all helpful, is it? The only way our hearts truly change is through the transformative power of Jesus Christ. And we said that God's chosen to work through us, us imperfect people, by the way, in bringing Christ to others. That we are the salt of the world, we are the salt of the earth, that we are bearing the thoughts and the heart of God to all people groups in the world. That is Matthew uh, 28, the Great Commission. Yet, we can't give away, we said last week, we can't give away what we don't have Right? We can't give away what we don't have. And when we give up our efforts towards spiritual formation, we said that spiritual entropy kicks in and bad things start to happen. We become moralistic. We become legalistic. We become angry. We become judgmental. Christ as mere fire insurance doesn't make us relevant to the world at all. It doesn't. So I, I can't just accept Jesus and then go about my life not worrying about my relationship with him and changing and to being in his likeness. You know, baby boomers were only concerned if the gospel was true, right? We were always concerned about if the gospel was true. And I, I kind of span these two worlds between baby boomers and millennials. You know, I, I'm kind of born in the middle of all that stuff. And, and uh, being assured of that, baby boomers left spiritual formation they let it go to the wayside. They, they didn't take it seriously enough. They didn't go deep enough. All they argued was the gospel being true. Millennials come along, and they don't necessarily care if something is true as much as it is relevant to everyday life. Does it make a difference to you? We need to pull those two camps together, and that's what we're trying to do in this whole sermon series. It is, it is important that the gospel is true. It is very important that the word of God is truth to us, but it is also equally important that it's relevant to us, that it changes us, that it makes a difference in everyday life. And if something's not true, it can't really truly be relevant to us either, can it? So we need to walk out our spiritual formation, and when we don't, 
when we choose not to, something will fill the vacuum that is left within us, and most likely those are things that are contrary to the thoughts of God, right? So even good and noble things like justice and love become idolatrous without a focus on Jesus, For instance, justice without forgiveness is simply revenge. It's simply mean-hearted revenge. And forgiveness without justice is appeasement. Both happen when Jesus isn't the end goal of justice. So when we're talking about justice, is Jesus the end goal or not? Because if he's not, it's become idolatrous. And love without the lordship of Christ is also misleading and damaging, right? We can't just be about love without being about Jesus. There are things we, in our humanistic sort of wisdom, think are loving things to allow somebody to do or allow somebody to be about or allow ourselves to be doing or being about. But in reality, they are very damaging to the soul of a person and to the community around it. The water of Christ must flow inwardly. It must come into us, flow inwardly, in order that it overflows out to others. Right? We can't give away what we don't have. So we seek and we preach the kingdom reign of God in obedience to Christ with the end goal of worship in mind. And I don't mean just worship on Sunday morning singing a song. I mean absolute, total, 100% all of me worshiping and abandoned towards God. So we remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Anybody who accepts Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is a command... For all of us, right? Which reiterates the Great Commission for all of us. And it tells us that we have what it takes to do as Jesus commissioned us to do. We can bring truth which is relevant to the world, right? But we must remember also that when Acts 1.8 isn't obeyed by the church, we experience Acts 8.1, right? Which says, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And you'll see this in Scripture over and over and over and over again. If we're unwilling to go to these people groups with the gospel, with with Jesus, right? God will send us by any means. You think your career is the most important thing in the world? No, that's not what God says. Right? You think your plans are the most important thing in the world? No. God's kingdom is the most important thing in your life as a Christian. Right? So he will send us by any means, or at times, he will bring the nations to us. So think of immigration. Think of invasion. It's happened in Scripture over and over again when Israel or people weren't bringing... God to the rest of the world, to the people groups that God had commanded them to bring, he had them invaded or he scattered them out among the nations. Or he had people come through as a trade route through Jerusalem so that that Israel could witness to the nations. Because remember, this is the purpose of the world revealed in the scriptures and it's reiterated in Matthew 24, 
14, one of my most favorite verses in the scripture, where it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, right? So we know what has to happen before Jesus comes back, but we just don't know when he's coming back, when that'll be finished, right? But that was all last week with a little bit of extra, right? And this is this week. And in this series, we are talking about the inner spiritual formation of our hearts in Christ. It's a very important issue, right? Comedian Sebastian Maniscalco, that's a great name, isn't it? That, I think that beats out Vinny Nicoletti. And... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I am sorry. I'm sorry. I, it's just very Italian. It's just a very Italian name. I wasn't making fun of Vinny. Okay. But a comedian Sebastian Maniscalco, if you've ever seen him, he's a funny guy, said his wife tried... <laughs> oh, Mary's going to kill me. Uh, said his wife tries to get him to smile, right? Uh, she says that uh, he has a mean resting face. That when he's just sitting there and he's not doing anything and he's not talking to anybody, he, he looks like he could murder your whole entire family, right? Oscar Wilde uh, said, by the age of 40, everyone has the face that they deserve. I'm 50. I'll be 51 next month, so I don't know what my face says, but uh, I think you're probably all going to go home and look in the mirror today and wonder what your face says about your inner self, right? Um. We all have this conscious level of thinking which we and even others are aware of to some, to some extent in our lives, right? The thinking comes out in our words, in our expressed thoughts, in our feelings, in our plans for life and all that kind of stuff. It is the presentable self. It is also the unpresentable self sometimes as we saw with some Eagles fans last week, right? Go birds, I guess. I'm supposed to say that. Although I didn't even watch the game, I'm ashamed to say. I know, I am a bad pastor. I repent. I am just not a football guy. But I will get on board for the Super Bowl, I I promise you. Um, As much as I can. Uh, (laughs) You're like, no, don't even bother, you jerk. (laughs) If you don't really care, just don't do it. Right? Sorry. But it's the presentable self and sometimes the unpresentable self. Sometimes we do things or we're publicly something that we don't really want everybody to see, right? But all of our outward sort of conscious expressions of self are tainted or driven by actually what lies underneath at the center of our worldview, which we saw in that circle uh, model up there, Our, our heart of hearts, right? It is our heart of hearts, the deeper world of self. Our spiritual self, right? It is the, it's, it's the core of who we are. We're not even fully aware of it, let alone other, uh, aware of another person's or them being aware of us. We operate out of it without the realization that we're operating out of it for the most part. It's sort of like one day when two younger fish are swimming along and they run to, into an older fish and he says, morning boys, because he's older and he's wiser and he knows a little bit more about life. And he says, morning boys, how's the water? And they keep swimming and then the one turns to the other one and he says, what's water? Right? If you're a fish, you don't really think about water, do you? The heart of hearts is the water in which we swim. It is. Our, our, it's our worldview. It's the center of who we are. We can't always see it, and we don't really understand it. I've been married to Kim for 25 years, and I do not understand the deeper recesses of Kim's heart. 
I've been inside my own head for almost 51 years now, and I don't understand mine, right? And if you climbed in my head, inside my head, it would be like walking a cheap haunted house at Halloween. It is a scary place to be sometimes. A childhood friend of mine, you can see this picture up here, posted a picture of our uh, 1977 first place little league, whatever it was, baseball as a team. There's my signature right there underneath the lacing. Um, I was 10 years old when that was, when we won that ball, right? Facebook has enabled me to reconnect with people like this, whom I haven't talked with in 30, 40 years. That's pretty incredible, which always gets you to think, right? It gets you thinking about life, what has formed you, how you grew up, what your influences were, your traumas, your high points, what you, why you do the things that you do. Why you react towards life and others as you do. And the conclusion always is that our hearts are extremely complicated things. They've been formed for better or worse by people and by environment and by by situations and experiences. And some of which aren't even worthy to give rain anymore as we get into our adult life. We don't understand our own hearts, which is why it's so dangerous. It is so, 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 so dangerous to let pop culture, another's opinion, the lady at the checkout counter who's had a bad day, the guy who gave you the finger in traffic, or the evil Pink Floyd-like teacher that you grew up with in childhood, or your teenage brother, or your, or your own deceitful hearts, or, or, or even experts in any field out there, define who we are. Just read an article this week from CNN from some guy who claims that cheating on your spouse is healthy for the relationships. I'd like to know if that are, that the guy who did that study was a swinger. Right? He probably is. Probably, I'm just watching kids. He's probably just a guy who's got some desires. And he just wants to say that. Because that is untrue. We are addicted to degrees. We are addicted to degrees. We believe anyone with letters behind their name, no matter how absurd their claims or how simplistic they make a complicated thing or how utterly chaotic and messed up their own lives are. We forget that behind those degrees are sinful, confused, frustrated, and sometimes quietly evil and vindictive people just like us. Humanity must, 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 must go to God for its identity and He alone for its identity. But we don't. I don't get it from my wife. I don't get it from my kids. I don't get it from being a pastor or what you think of me or being a victim or my past or my current sin life or my education or my wealth or my social status or none of that gives me my identity. My identity springs from, as a Christian, my identity springs from and is rooted in Jesus Christ. It's that important. I love David Foster Wallace's uh, commencement speech given to Kenyon College in 2005. Uh, You can go on YouTube and listen to it. He's an atheist, he was an atheist, confessing that he's all about himself, that he's the center of his universe, right? 
His spiritual self is a self-centered self, right? Everything's about him, right? Everything revolves around him and his desires and what he wants in life. That's why he gets so mad in traffic. That's why he gets so mad at all the stupid people at the supermarket and all that kind of stuff, right? And he said, though, that when it's all about you, everyone and everything frustrates you all the time. Does that feel familiar, right? It does. And so he urged the graduates that day to think beyond themselves, to have higher thoughts, to care for others, to look at things differently than their, de- their default way of seeing the world as that thing which is supposed to just serve them, right? And he added, we all worship something. He said, we all worship something. That there are no true atheists in the world. That we all worship something. And it's better to worship something higher than yourself rather than yourself. An atheist says this, right? But to David Foster Wallace, it didn't matter what you chose to worship. It didn't matter. One iota, what you chose to worship. His message basically was, do good, think better thoughts, worship something more worthwhile than yourself, and then die. David, I like the guy. I love, I've li- listened to his commencement speech I don't know how many times. Love him. David Foster Wallace killed himself three years later after that speech. I felt him to be so close to understanding, to grasping, that he was thoughtful. He was almost pastor-like in his leading of these kids graduating. He fell painfully short, though, in his refusal to see the lordship of Jesus Christ in life. It's my belief that this is what drove his despair The ability for him to see the need so clearly at the heart of hearts, to see the absolute need for humanity and himself included, but not see Jesus as the only answer to it, not bend his knee. What we choose to worship in life must have power to do spiritual surgery within our hearts. Must. It must be greater than us, And nothing but Christ has that power and is able to do that surgery for us. He is the great physician. He just is. As he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That gives a lot of people these days the hives to hear that. Oh, how can he be so exclusive? He's uh, He's exclusive in his claims not just for the sake of exclusivity, not to be a jerk, but because it's true. It is true. He is actually the way, the truth, and the life. And he would be not only lying to say that you could find ultimate purpose and fulfillment and peace any other way, but he would be evil and misleading to do so. There are no other paths to God. There are no other paths to ultimate fulfillment and purpose and security in life, in everlasting life. It is only found through Jesus. God came here. He is either Lord, liar, or lunatic, and we all must make that choice when we're faced with who Jesus is. 
He doesn't leave us the luxury of saying that he's just another good teacher or that he, you know, or, or, or to disregard his authority in what he says. He claimed to be the one, the only true God who is the source of life and fulfillment for all of humanity, everybody. And he says, go tell the nations this. Go tell everybody that. And so what we find is that we as Christians, we need his thoughts downloaded to our minds, to our hearts. That's what we need. Data input from the creator of the human computer to our spiritual hard drives. That's what it is. It's like Jesus becomes the new operating system when you give your life to him. And our quiet times and our prayer lives and all that are the periodic, systematic updates needed to run it smoothly. Because we don't understand our hearts. Remember Jeremiah said, our hearts are deceitful above all else. We think we know ourselves and we think we know others until traumatic events happen and people act differently than we would expect. Right? For example, at at one point during my ministry life, my ministry career, I went totally silent. Just total radio silence. I know that's hard to to believe for those of you that know me. Um, Some of you tell me I talk too much, right? Never would have thought it. Never would have thought that I would be like that. But outside of absolute necessity, preaching on Sunday morning or being in a meeting or having to talk to the checkout counter lady or whatever it was, I basically didn't talk to a soul. I didn't want to say a word. If asked a question, I'd, I'd shrug. Or I'd give a one-word answer if I could. I just, even though I had thoughts in my mind, I did not want to share them. It was, I did anything to deflect things and not to have to talk to people. It was a, a result of stress and failed expectations in my life. But my reaction was really way stronger than I had ever expected myself to react to stress. And I had to get back to Jesus that day. I had to get back to him. I had to reignite my faith. And I had to let him do heart surgery on me one more time. All the time he's doing that on me, right? The psalmist knew this. As he wrote in Psalm 139, he says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Think about those words. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Does anybody know you? Does even your spouse or your mom and your dad even know you that well? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to to attain. In other words, not the psalmist nor any of us have this ability to know anyone, even ourselves, to this level, to this extent. We are not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. We can't see the water we swim in. But thankfully, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. To be known like this is both our greatest desire 
and our greatest fear at the same time, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, God knows it. You thought it. God already knew you were going to think it. It's kind of scary. If God were a tyrant, this would be the worst news in the world. It would. It would be the worst news in the world because you can hide your thoughts and your inner spiritual life to some extent from all the other tyrants in the world, but not from him. But thankfully, Jesus is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of love and a God of holiness. But even so, right, we're not always in the habit of entrusting our hearts to Jesus, which is to live by faith. And remember, we've said that faith is being assured that someone or something can satisfy a need in you. Our trust and our faith has too long been put in things which, which can only address the physical five senses. They cannot touch on the spiritual inner life in the way that God can, and only God can. Our societal presumption that science and technology and education would save the human soul has led us deeply into despair in this country. Because the promises of this humanistic trinity have been left unrealized and will continue to be. I have no problem with any of those things, those three things. I rely on them just like you do. I have my iPad right here. It's technology, right? I rely on these things. But I am fully, 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 fully aware they are unable to go to the depths that we need them to, right? They can't address the ills of the human heart. They can't reach into the center of us where the only the divine is able to tinker with the non-physical nature of our soul. The need, we need Jesus plain and simple. That's what we need, Jesus Christ. Science promised us so much, right? So much. A world free of disease, just give it time and even death would be conquered as Walt Disney cryogenically awaits his resurrection. He's frozen, waiting to be brought back to life. Believe it or not, you've got to have a lot of money to do that, right? But the greater the progress, the greater the destruction. Science has made many advancements for our well-being, and we, we embrace those things. But we may find that those advan- the advancements are outweighed by its dark side. There's a real concern about AI, artificial intelligence, right now. It's a huge discussion. Technology assumed any problem could be resolved if the right tool, method, or technology could be found. There was no need for God. There's no need for his revelation. Man's problems are man-sized problems. He can handle them. And all we need is a little more time to, fi- to, 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 write, to, to fix, fix it with the right stuff, right? Technology gives us good things. We all benefit from it, but in spite of its advancements, it's beginning to dawn on all but the most optimistic out there that the promises technology made are exaggerated and the downside could be greater than the good. The third member of modernity's humanistic trinity is education. And the 20th century was to be the century when the West would remove ignorance from everybody through education. And by doing so, we were going to eradicate evil in the world. Proponents of this enthronement of education saw the most basic problem in society is as ignorance and not human sin. 
Human sin is disregarded. And there's even a, a movement within Christianity to say not to use the word sin anymore. You'll never hear that at 6-8, as long as I'm pastor. Sin is real. They thought if we can just get people to think rightly, then they'll live rightly. Education promised us so much, but it has fallen far short since it, like the other two, don't hold sway over the inner person. Education works well as a servant, but it makes a very, very poor king. And as a king, it brings only despair. Everything has to come under the subservience of Jesus Christ. We thought that those three things could save us. Science and technology and education. Just, look at, just go back 30, 40 years and look at all the covers of Time magazine. And you'll understand what I'm talking about. These have been our gods. Our sources of hope in a modern world. That's what they've been. But all, uh, all of the ongoing law ills which continually plague our society like cancers have exposed these idols for what they are. They are presumptuous gods promoted by deceiving prophets. It is just simply mankind on the throne of self still. Our deceived hearts latch on to these things, shutting the door to Jesus, leaving him waiting outside instead of in, on his rightful place as a, on the throne of our hearts. And our prophets didn't bank on Kim Jong-un and Muslim extremism and white supremacists and randy comedians and actors and other people behaving badly in the news. Those that are driven not by robotic, scientific, technological, well-educated, logical thought, but something deeper, something much more sinister, the unchecked, sinful self, which is unconcerned about the well-being of others, or at the very least, vastly deceived by what it means to be concerned about others. Many kings have sat on golden thrones eating steak while their people perish only to sincerely believe that they have actually provided for the needs of those people. And many other kings have oppressed them until their death. The death of God theological movement arose in the 1960s and one of the pioneers of that movement was Gabriel Vihanian. And in 1961, Vihanian's book, The Death of God, was published. And Vihanian argued that modern secular culture had lost all sense of sacred, lacking any sacramental meaning, no transcendental purpose or sense of providence in society, and he concluded that for the modern mind, God is dead. And Vahanian's vision a transformed post-Christian and post-modern culture was needed to recreate or create a renewed experience of deity, something to worship. But like David Foster Wallace, what do you choose to worship? What do you choose to worship? It has to be the all-personal God who knows us inside and out and with the power to change us internally. It has to be can't be anything else. And as the psalmist continues in verses 13 and 14, we see that only God knows us full well. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. He not only speaks here of the physical creation, but the spiritual as well. The heart of hearts. It's the spiritual self which drives us and Kim Jong-un and all the thinking and doing in life. It's not necessarily logical and, and, and only addressing it from the outside behavioral or artifact level doesn't control it, doesn't change it. The physical things of life are subservient to the spiritual self. Although we've tried to move them above it, right? Uh, go read Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason and you'll understand what I'm talking about. We've tried to move the physical things, nature above the divine, right? Or we've tried to replace the spiritual life with them. But we've got to ask ourselves, what's more important? The car I drive, the house I live in, the job I have, my, my career, my sexual identity, how much I know about this or that subject, my intelligence and all that kind of stuff? Or is it how well I know and am known by my Creator and how much my spiritual life reflects Jesus? Because we all want peace in this world. We all want love in this world. And only Jesus brings it. But we betray ourselves by our gossip. This inner spiritual life is what we talk about all the time, all over the place in relation to other people. News has become only gossip. Have you noticed that? It's no longer truth. Who knows what's true anymore when you hear a story? Right? Who knows? Who knows? We attack others at character, character level in the news. We, we judge everybody. Facts be damned, right? Right? But at the same time, we have no basis for our criticism since we've left Jesus and his standards and his teachings outside in the cold. And we really don't know why people do the things that they do anyway. And at most, we are conje- it's conjecture at best, right? And when we're pointing the finger at people, we've got three fingers pointing back at our own hearts. And now... As a result of all this, in past decades, we've seen a popularity arising in cardboard spiritualism in America, in all its various forms, and with all its prophets hanging their plank out so that they can profit off the felt needs of Americans because this humanistic trinity has failed them. They have no hope. All preaching a gospel either clearly contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ or subtly more insidious in its deceit. Trying to pass off a saddled pig as an Arabian stallion. It just doesn't work. Looking very, very religious on the outside, many of them, but disregarding the revealed word of God in all its wisdom and all its richness. It's all a vain attempt to address that pungent, clamoring need of the spiritual self with no compass to guide it. We have not sought to grow in the knowledge of Christ who himself said, it is written, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, every thought that comes from the mouth of God. And the psalmist knew this. As he hungered for the Lord's word, let's let's read that. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, the psalmist models for us the person's sincere desire to turn off all the other voices in the narrative of life and honing in on the one voice which matters the most, and that is your Creator's. He longs to know and be known by God in all the glory and the fear which comes with that, right? It's God's thoughts he acknowledges that he can't fathom, but it's also God's thoughts he knows he needs so desperately. Man does not live on bread alone. That is true. And no one gave that statement more meaning than Jesus in that upper room just before his crucifixion. And he uses the wine and the bread at mealtime to communicate the greater need to ingest his life, to take him in to their inner life as he spoke to the disciples. And not in the way, by the way, of transubstantiation, that conversion of the Eucharistic elements into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, as some religious orders would believe. I'm not promoting that. But rather in a very true and real spiritual sense that he can dwell within our hearts, changing us from the inside out. He is relevant. Jesus invades our being by heart conviction. Katie was telling me a little bit of her story, her conversion story this morning. She's like, ah, oh, just, like, just overtook me. Jesus invades us by heart conviction. And later he would confirm his statement and charge to those disciples by his death and resurrection. Man can't live by physical bread alone. The physical world can't solve our spiritual ills. Only Jesus can, the true bread of life. And Jesus made it real by going to the cross and then coming out of that grave. And like Ephesians chapter 2 reveals, Jesus addresses this center bullseye of self, making us alive as nothing else can. Ravi Zacharias says, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came, came to make dead people alive. And that's true, Right? Jesus changes us at the core of self, beginning with the inside working outward. It says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no, none of us can boast. It's God's doing. And what we find when we read that is that we are objects of his love. We are objects of his grace. We are objects of his mercy. And he pursued us even to the point of entering into our physical reality, becoming a man and walking among us, in order that we would know his heart and we would see it in action and we would have access to his transforming power. Even in our transgressions, even when we didn't care, he pursued, which says that although in our sinful nature we deserve death, we are worthy of God's grace at the same time because we are his creation. We are made in his image. 
He wants, he longs to have us back and he will go to the greatest extent to make that happen. And so the message is, and here it is, the message is, you are that special. That's the gospel message. You are that special. Even when we've fallen far away. And since our transgression is punishable by death, something perfect had to die. The only perfect human, who was Jesus, took our place at the cross in order to satisfy that cost for us. And in his resurrection, he overcame sin and death, lifting us up to the heavenly realms. Amen? Amen. That's our identity in Jesus. That's our identity. Maybe the old self was deserving of death, but we are a creation of God, worthy of his grace and salvation due to that fact. So he came, we're made new, we're blessed, we're living examples of God's love to the world. He alone can address the spiritual core of our heart's need. David Foster Wallace was right. He was right. We need to dislodge ourselves from being the center of the universe, the center of our lives. But we replace our worship of self with, with, with something that has power to rule our hearts, that actually has power to rule our hearts and this world. And nothing else can do that but Jesus. Nothing. We don't just get saved. Oh, you're saved, right? We don't just get saved and that's it. But like Francis Schaeffer used to say, I found the present value of the blood of Christ day in and day out. In other words, every day living out life with Jesus, day in and day out, constantly surprised by grace, constantly reliant on the only one who truly knows our hearts and can lead us in the way everlasting. Rosemary Miller used to say, there are those that marvel at the liberation that comes when you are no long, when you no longer think that the gospel as a me- think of the gospel as a message relevant only to non-Christians. The gospel is relevant to all of us every single day. Many of us kind of know the lyrics of the gospel, but we're not hearing the music. We're not singing along with Jesus. And Jesus stands with open arms to walk this out with us, to dance with us, and it's time for us to join him. It is time. Let, let him address your heart as only he can. And this is what this series has given you, tools. Use your Lexio Divina journals. Use your Ruin to Renovation binders. And I just want to remind you how to use those because some of you have been like, I don't know how to do that. Every Monday, this sermon and the questions Uh, get posted on our website, go on the website, download the questions. You can download the whole sermon if you want in text. Put them in your binder and have a quiet time with that. We're doing the same thing in community groups. Get ready before your community group. Do do something privately first and then bring it to your community group and talk about what you you heard. Uh, Today I printed out from last week, we, we, part of our questions was to, uh, Do you know how to share the gospel? Do you know what verses to use when you want to share Jesus with somebody? When you're telling them your testimony, your conversion story? So I printed out those verses. Take the time to memorize the Roman road verses. If you you memorize just those verses, holy smokes, you would be like on top of your game with sharing Jesus with people. Because it's important that we do that, right? 
Pray. Fellowship. Make it a priority to be here every Sunday. Come hell or high water, if I can say that in church. Make it here. Worship with your brothers and sisters because this is where we're fed. This is where we do this as a body. And this is where we go out and take, take it from here out into the world. Get to community group. If you're not a part of one, get to one. Even if you're tired and you're like, I don't want to go. Every single one of you tells me every Tuesday night, every Wednesday night, or every whatever night, I really don't want to go because I'm tired. But then after I go, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so great. Remember that. Just get there. Just get there. Everything. Everything is spiritual. We say this all the time at 6-8. Everything is spiritual. Making your bed, driving in your car, worshiping here on Sunday morning, whatever it is, everything is spiritual. And we need to be an influence at all costs. Be Christ to one another and to the world around us. Since Jesus, as mere fire insurance, has no relevance to anybody. Let me pray for us. Father, I am a windy past this morning. But I'm excited. I am so excited about what you're speaking to me in this whole series and what you're speaking to the church. And I know that these issues are deep and rattling and sometimes very encouraging. And we ask that you would use all of these words, whatever words that would be of you would fall on our hearts And whatever would not be of you would fall away. And we pray that you would speak to us and move our hearts forward in you, that we would become more and more like you as we walk out of this room today. We thank you. Heavenly Father, we just just pause in your presence and thank you for meeting us here this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask come. Lead us, Lord, in worship of you. Lord, I thank you. I ask, Lord, boldly, Lord, that you would come. Come into our hearts. Come into our minds. Invade us, Lord. Be our Father. We thank you that you know us perfectly. That you made us perfectly. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would remember that and carry that with us, Lord. And, Lord, we would just ask boldly, Lord, that uh, for more of that in our lives, teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how to be your children. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.